This is David Averin, author of Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com or Google Lead Generation for Manufacturers, and you'll find the guide at the top of the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is a really cool app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome David Averin to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back, published by Career Press. David Averin has become one of the most popular speakers on customer experience in the world today. In recent years, David has presented for organizations and audiences in 22 countries on six continents. A former CEO group leader and a speaker for Vistage International, the world's leading CEO member organization, David has had over 4,000 one-on-one conversations with company leaders regarding their value proposition and competitive advantages. David is the author of two other books, It's Not Who You Know, It's Who Knows You, A Practical Business Guide to Raising Your Profits by Raising Your Profile, and Visibility Marketing, The No-Holes-Barred Truth About What It Takes to Grab Attention, Build Your Brand, and Win New business. And interesting fact, he sang with an a cappella group called The Diners. David, <laughs> congratulations on why customers leave and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, my friend. With the exception of the very last line, I was thinking it, it couldn't have been a better introduction if I hadn't written it myself. So thank you for that and for pronouncing everything correctly. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, there was a story in there that uh, really resonated with me. And it had to do when when you were once performing with your um, fellow singers at a wedding. And uh, we may get to that. So the book has been described by Jay Bear, who I've had the honor of interviewing three times for this podcast. A good man. Yeah. Yes. A good man. And 
doggone it, just as smart as he is nice. Yes, he is. He described the book as an eviscerating indictment of how poorly customers are often treated and the powerful recipe for doing the exact opposite. So, David, I have to make an admission, a confession here. Your book pissed me off for all the right reasons. Let me explain. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. (laughs) True story. Just yesterday, I went to a men's clothing store and... uh, Let's just say several things were being done wrong, and I, yeah, ultimately I just left, uh, in part because I didn't want to keep waiting. Uh, but there were some other things too, and I, I was very proud of myself. I was able to keep calm, and you know I left. And I'm not going back, uh, but I was very upset, upset because I wasted my time, and then it occurred to me that I should just bring a copy of this book wherever I go, and then. Rather than getting upset when I have terrible service, I'm going to ask for the owner, and I'm just going to hand a copy of your book to them. You, sir, are a book-selling genius. I appreciate that. You know, it's so funny, um, and, and maybe it's not funny, how much this has resonated with people. And I didn't write a book that was intended to be a rant, though I think I, while I was writing it, I feared that it would be a bit of a rant. But I tried to be very diagnostic as well as prescriptive and tell enough stories so that business owners and those in business that they would sort of see themselves in the scenarios. And it wasn't even as much as why are you doing this? Uh, at the end of every chapter, I said, here's why you do it. And nobody's, I don't think anybody's setting out to piss off their customers, but what they are doing is they've circled the wagons to such an extent that they're really looking internally. How can we compete in this very challenging time? How can we create some measure of, of structure and process and predictability so that we might have predictability and outcome and behavior and revenue and profits. And what's lost in all of that is us, which is how we want to do business and the questions and unique scenarios that we have that may not fit into their pre-planned training. And I was asked the other day, I was saying, but we've been talking about this for so long, why do they not get it? And I said, well, part of it, I think, is is that there's been a real shift. And I think we do understand the customer service part of it. We've talked about it for decades. It's service with a smile. It's treating everybody, um, you know, being that friendly part of their day. Customer experience really is something different. It's looking at every point of contact and and asking the question, could it be done better or faster or more friendly or more convenient or more intuitive or memorable? And Instead, what we're so focused on the process to create a level of predictability. I think we, we, we refer this as, to this as the, uh, as the franchise model, right? That's why mm-hmm. people will pay, buy into a franchise as opposed to open their own burger place is that we've worked out all the problems. If you do it this way and then this and then this and hire people with this and make them do this, then here's what you'll spit out at the end. And in the meantime, we're waving our hand going, hello. Um, can I get that without pickles, please? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, sorry, we don't do substitutions. Right. Right. And so, um, it's resonating because I think it's, it's getting worse in some cases. And I, the, the intention of the book was a wake up call, pull out a magnifying glass and saying, take a look at what you're doing because you're driving people away. Yes, Absolutely. And, but honestly, as I got through some of these things, I thought, oh gosh, this is going to be another book, you know, kind of like some of Jay Bear's books, where 
I read it, and then I realize, you know, this guy's actually making it more difficult for me <laughs> because now he's reminding me of why these things happen and what upsets me. And so, anyway, you know what? I guess it's a long-winded way of saying this book got me to do something I don't really like to do, and that's think. Now, let's go on to an excerpt I'd like to read from the preface. You say, in this book, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear because it will save you money and it will even make you money. It may even help you become a better person. Right now, in some ways, your behavior, some behavior, is costing you money and relationships. Your cost-cutting is costing you customers, and your policies designed to make life easier and more efficient for your employees are driving clients and customers away. Here is the uncomfortable truth. As good as you are, most prospective customers don't choose you. They yep. choose someone else. Unless you have more than a 50% market share, rare, most of your prospects choose to do business with your competitors instead of you. Why? This book will help you uncover or discover some of those reasons. Now, David, in the preface, you then go on to write that although you speak for a living, you're not a motivational speaker, which of course then answered my unasked question about if you live in a van down by the river and, and, and eat government <laughs> cheese. But which is which is why I don't say I'm a motivational speaker. Ah, I figured that was it. But uh, what explain why you did make that distinction? Is it because people uh, I don't know mistake people who speak for a living as motivational speakers, or is there some um, some baggage there? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. I, th I think people automatically go to that place. So, oh, you're a motivational speaker. And in my mind, and I have some wonderful colleagues who are motivational speakers. They've climbed mountains. They've won gold medals. They've survived cancer. They've lost a limb. And and I have great admiration for what they've been through. But so often when people say, oh, motivational speaker, it's almost dismissive in that we're supposed to vicariously through their triumph over some tragedy change our behavior. And that's not my modus operandi. I am, I'm a business speaker and, and I, and I joke and I use, I, I'm very entertaining. It's a, there's a lot of humor in my, in my keynotes, but I use it strategically to temper a tough message about what it takes to compete and win today. We are really in an interesting time, Douglas. It, we, uh, for the first time, really ever, everybody's good. I mean, they are. I mean, if you weren't good, you wouldn't survive. It doesn't mean that there aren't some posers on the periphery. But for those of you in business, all around the world, there are more competitors than have we've ever had in history. You add the internet to it and you multiply it by 10 million. And But the internet outs underperformers. So those who aren't good, it's Yelp, it's TripAdvisor, it's Rotten Tomatoes, it's Glassdoor. The internet will out underperformers. So what's left and those that survive are really, really good. And I tell audiences all the time, I say, you know, the worst part about your competitors is most of them are very, very nice people. It's like, wouldn't you love to hate them? But we can't because they're good. You know what they're doing? They're working hard every day. They're listening to the customers and they're supporting their families. But we tend to fall into these marketing traps where we talk about competency-based claims or quality and commitment and caring and trust in people. And I ask, what, what, why you? Why are you different? For, it comes down to quality. And I'm like, you really believe that, don't you? you like, like your competitors don't have quality? We have to find meaningful competitive advantage. And so part of what I talk about in the new book, Why Customers Leave, is we work very hard to attract new customers and new clients. Uh, and then we inadvertently frustrate them in some way and we drive them away. 
And we're losing so many opportunities. I, I tell audiences the, the biggest source of lost revenue for your business is the customer, the client, the prospect that you never knew about. They, they drove by and they didn't stop or they, they came in and they left without being engaged or they called on the phone and they hung up because they didn't want to deal with your voicemail system or they went to your website and they couldn't easily or intuitively find what they were looking for and they left and they didn't buy anything and they didn't leave their information and you have no idea who those people were or how many of them that there were. I mean, that's your biggest source of lost revenue. So in the book, what I, what I try to do is have business owners and those in business take a step back and look at their customer journey from the customer's perspective. Now, a lot of organizations, a lot of business leaders think that they do this already. And what they do, and it's really, I think, a, a fool's errand in that they'll bring in like secret shoppers or they'll have somebody from corporate go through their customer's experience. But they're rating their employees and their process based on their training, on their handbook. Did they meet the standard? They're going... Your customers have no idea what's in your handbook. They just know if they enjoyed it or not, if they found it easy or not, or was it difficult? And so my message as I speak, and I'm not a motivational speaker, I think anytime we build our business, it's motivating, is, um, is using humor and, and, and an entertaining style to deliver a tough message that you got to take a step back and you got to look at your value proposition and how you do business and how fast you do business and how easily you do business from uh, a new and fresh perspective. Yes, and you just mentioned value proposition, and I also included that in your introduction. Remind listeners what a value proposition is and if there are popular misperceptions of what a value proposition is. Uh, disabuse those. Well, I, I think it's it's fairly straightforward. It's what do you offer? What do you say? This is this is what you get when you shop with us. And okay, today, so a lot of companies are thinking you're getting quality, like you just mentioned. Well, yeah. Well, that th that's what they think is their their advantage, their competitive advantage. Um, I, I hear CEOs stand in front of their organizations all the time, and they'll say, I mean, they'll go on right before I go on stage, and they'll say, Listen, people, at the end of the day, it still comes down to quality. And, 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 I, and I shake my head and I'm like, I, I could not disagree more. At the beginning of the day, it's about quality. I'm not talking about quality being unimportant. It's incredibly important, but it's just assumed. It is the, it is the entry fee. You better be good at what you do. That's, that's what it takes to compete today. But at the end of the day, it's not about quality. At the end of the day, it's about competitive advantage. It's not about what you do well. It's about what do you do better or differently than others who do it well. I think your value proposition is basically, here's what we say we do, but your competitive advantage is by doing something different or something better. And today, it's very difficult to compete on having a better product or service. It is. I mean, so many of my audiences, the people listening to this podcast right now, you may be good at what you do, but you have not created the cure for cancer that tastes like chocolate. You're not that good. And don't diminish in your mind the quality of what your competitors are producing. It's very difficult to compete on having a better product unless you are just monumentally innovating to such a greater extent. Um, sometimes what, what I'll hear from business owners is like ours is, ours is better and that's why it's more expensive. Well, what if your customers don't want better or don't care about better? Mm -hmm. What if they're sometimes the biggest challenge for businesses is customers who are fine we're fine. This is good. Oh, but ours is better, but I don't need better. Sometimes good enough at a better price point is a better, it is a better choice. So if they can't really compete on a better product, you got to be great. 
but you aren't necessarily better. I think the real opportunity, Douglas, is to compete on having, uh, on knowing our customers better and delivering for them what we do better or faster or more memorably or something. I think we can compete better today on providing a better experience than on a better product. Yes, and that brings to mind a point in the book where you talk about the perils of the golden rule. Wait, stay with me. Where they say, treat your customers like you want to be treated. But actually, um, a lot of companies don't understand their customers well enough to know how they actually want to be treated. Can you talk about that that gap that happens. Absolutely. Well, first of all, they think they understand them them very, very well, but they understand them generally demographically, um, which is all we had for so many years. But today we have big data. We have so much more information. You cannot tell me that every um, Asian woman between 22 and 29 years old will like the same pair of pants. That's demographics. That's even psychographics. Today, we have a chance of really knowing our customers so much better. And of course, the greatest predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So we look at at past buying behaviors. Um, but even along in that realm, we screw it up because what we do, and I talk about it in the book, is we take those who have bought from us, our absolute ideal customer, because they've already shown that they want to purchase from us. And then we inundate them. We bombard them. If you buy anything from overstock.com, expect three emails a day for the rest of your life. So let's take the people who love us because they bought something. We assume that they will because we have good products and services. And now let's really annoy them by over-marketing to them. It's a crazy um, prospect. It's a crazy strategy. And so I, I, I think we do have an opportunity to know them better. I think customer, uh, companies think that they know their customers well, but, but I think we can know them better. And that gives us a, a way to deliver to them what they want the way they want it. And here, here's one of the exercises I do when I consult. Sometimes I'll do a full day with an organization, a team. I just got back from Abu Dhabi, worked with a billion-dollar brand. And, and I said, let's, let's look at who your ideal customer is, the old 2080 rule, right? 20% of your customers are going to constitute 80% of your profit and revenue. Who is your ideal customer? Ask some questions. What, what, do they, um, what do they dislike about doing business with your industry? Just in general. Just mm-hmm. try and list those things. What would they love if you could provide it? Not what you do that they love. What would they love if you could do it? What do they fear? Um, what do they need to make a decision? What is their, their hierarchy in terms of decision-making within their organization? Um, and what are the other choices? And we go through this long exercise. And at the end, I say, now compare your current value proposition, the current way you do business and what you offer with what you think they really want and need and like and fear and find out, do you have alignment? If you, if you come up with some ideas of here's what we know that they don't like, are we guilty of some of those things? Well, here's some things that they would love. Well, what would it take for us to provide them? That's doing a deeper dive and looking at your customers and not just, you know, where do they live and what's their race and what's their gender. I think we can do so much better. Absolutely. And just changing gears here a bit, sure. you're one of the best known customer experience speakers in the world, but I think there's still a lot of misperception of customer experience versus customer service. Can you yep. Compare and contrast for folks to help them understand that these are two things that are very different. They they are, and it's sort of I kind of joke that that 
branding is to marketing, what customer experience is to customer service. And a lot of people just think it's a natural growth or even a rebranding of the term. And a lot of people who've taught customer service for 20 years all of a sudden are, are talking customer experience. And they really are, while they're branches on the same tree, I think they're very different disciplines. And I'll give you a quick example. Customer service might be how somebody treats you at the point of contact. Did you feel respected? Did they look you in the, in the eye? Did you feel like you were just a number where they really saw you? And there's companies that are very good at this. You know, the Ritz-Carlton is very good at this. There is no, they don't even say yes. They say it would be my pleasure. That's great customer service. Customer experience is different. Customer service is how do we experience doing business with you? And then how do we feel about how that experience went? And to be clear, I'm not talking about wow experiences. I'm not a big fan of wow experience. They're great if they happen, but I have a hard time as a customer celebrating that somebody else got a wow experience. It's somebody else that you drove all night to bring them a suit or a, or a dress for a wedding or a funeral. That's wonderful, but that doesn't affect me. Wait, wait, when you say it doesn't affect you, what, what do you mean? As a customer well, I mean, I, or? I didn't benefit from that. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for them, but that's not a company providing a great experience. It, it, it created a wow moment for somebody. I talk about how do we do it great at every point of contact every time ah, okay. so that you can develop a reputation. But here's the better example of customer experience. For Because I, I've spoken for, for 20 years. At, I'm now up to 25 countries. I'm heading out on Monday for Bogota, Colombia. Uh, that you know, as, as we – there's always inadvertent or inevitably there's, there's like a – uh, a banking customer that I'll work with or somebody in one of the CEO roundtable groups. And forever what they've said is our advantage is for our best customers, our high net worth individuals. We know them by name. We under, we see them by sight. We know them by name. Well, what happens, Doug, if your primary bank branch becomes your cell phone, right? All of a sudden that perceived competitive advantage goes out the window because I travel around the world. I can take a picture of my check and deposit it. I can transfer money to my daughter who's off at college. Her, her text comes in to me. It's the sound of a cash register. I set the ringtone because she always just wants money. Just mm. saying. That's a great and, idea. My, my daughter's and, in college. and Yeah, just set the ringtone for just a cha-ching and you'll know it's, it's her wanting money. But now my bank branch, my primary branch is my phone. So my experience, my customer experience is through my electronic device. So here's how granular they're getting and trying to make it better and intuitive. I can log in with my face. I can click and transfer money to my kids with one click. But they're even getting to the point now, we're looking, where are we frustrated even with that? Well, it's, it's things that are so stupid. We are so spoiled that when you put in your username and your password and your password is wrong in some way, you have to put in your username again. Oh my gosh, how horrible is that, right? And we get frustrated. Well, now they're saying that's a point of frustration. So now many banks and others are saying, if you mess up your password, you don't have to put your username back in. It's that kind of minutia to try and create and gain some sort of competitive advantage. The customer experience is how you were treated across the counter, um, the customer service. The mm -hmm. customer experience is how we experience doing business with the bank. And today it is, uh, it, it doesn't, somebody doesn't have to be nice to me or give me a smile when I'm using my phone. That's the difference between the two. The experience is how were you easy to do business with? I mean, here, here's one of the biggest offenses I will tell you, and I talk about it in the book and you saw it, is probably the biggest point of frustration for customers is businesses that make it very difficult to talk to a real person. I mean, they're consciously made a decision that we are not going to put phone numbers. You go to a website, you can't find a phone number. I have a simple question and I can't talk to anybody. 
but they give you a contact form because that's how they want you to do business. They want you to fill out the form. It goes to one person. We're going to get all this extra information, right? We can pre-qualify and we can find out when they're ready to buy or are they working with somebody and all this information. They think it's brilliant. We're going to have all this information. Here's the disconnect. We don't want to fill out the form. The, the contact form on the website is the answering machine of the internet. We don't leave messages anymore. If you're calling somebody to do sprinkler repair and you go online on Craigslist and you find a list of sprinkler repair people in your area, you call somebody and you get a voicemail. Sorry, I'm working in the field. I will, uh, I'll call you when I get back. Do you leave a message? Of course you don't. Mm -hmm. You just call the next one and you call the next one. The reason somebody asked me once, they said, your book is called why customers leave. If you were going to say in one simple sentence, why do customers leave? And I say, because they can, <laughs> because, because we have so many choices. We're. We, we leave because we can, because it's not that loyalty is dead in business. It's just much harder to earn and much harder to keep because it's so easy to leave you. And do you think that's the number one reason why customers leave? Or is it, uh, you also talk in the book about why indifference is uh, one of the big drivers of why customers leave. Yeah, well, you know what? If you, here's, and here's the context of that. There's a great line, and I didn't make this up, that says the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Hate is just another strong emotion. Emotion. But if, if you feel like you're indifferent, I mean, what happens for most people who get their needs met and their expectations met? They are what I would call fine. Or fine. It was good. How was it? It was fine. <laughs> the problem is if your customers, if you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do every time, your customers are fine. And the problem is there is somebody out there who wants to thrill them, who wants to impress them, who wants to take your longtime customer and transform them into their first time customer. So I have, I have this whole exercise and I talk about it in the book about that we cannot stop wooing our customers. It's the same thing in our romantic relationships, right? What are the things that you did on the front end to impress your spouse or your mate? Are you still doing it a year in, two years in? It translates to business. Indifference is, is a slow death march for businesses. If they, they'll spend so much time in attracting the new customer that they take the old ones for granted. And it's not that they underperform because you can't today. It's that they just, oh, they're fine. God, they've done business with us. We've worked with them forever. And there's somebody behind the scenes who is trying to give them a better price, who is trying to say, we'll also do this for you. We'll do this for you. And then all of a sudden they leave and you're like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what happened? Well, they did all these things. Well, I would have done that. Yeah, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. So we, we can't be complacent in business because everybody is good today, because the choices are profoundly vast. Well, you know, a lot of the companies that I speak to are, they're, you know, in our instance, they're looking for help growing their business, particularly sure. top line growth through like new net new sales. Uh, right. But we, we engage with them and occasionally we'll find someone that desperately needs your book because they have like a, a very leaky uh, customer bucket and they're focused on getting more net new business. And it's almost like it's an elephant in the room. They don't even see that uh, getting more business could actually be harmful uh, for them. What, what is it you say to companies to help them realize that they need to 
probably start more with what's in your book rather than trying to go out and market themselves like crazy to get more more new customers, more leads. Sure. Part, part of it is, I think, is is sort of a wake up call. I think everybody understands in business that it's a lot cheaper, a lot cheaper to keep a customer than earn a new one. But I think so many have chalked it up to it's just the reality of our business. It's just that we're going to have a, a 20%, an 80% turn year over year. And they've gotten complacent as, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. And the reality is because because the sales structure, the sales focus, the sales mindset and culture within organizations is always about acquisition, right? How do we acquire that that new customer? How do we go after that? And the service side of it tends to be less important or less of a focus um, because if we can keep filling up the, the the top of that funnel, we can spit out more customers. And I tell a little story at the uh, in one of the chapters in my book about me as a young kid and back in in my day and in, in our day, I'm 55. Is that I, we? My dad and I walked into a bank, and they used to have that display right up front, which were the premiums for new accounts. Well, back then the premiums were like a toaster, and I asked my dad and I said, um, "What's that toaster for?" He says, "Those are for people who open up accounts." And I, he, I said, do we get a, a new toaster? And he said, no, those are for just people who open up brand new accounts. And I said, well, what do we get? And he says, nothing, <laughs> right? And and it's one of the mistakes that customers uh, that companies make is that even they, then yeah. David Averin was asking the right questions. I'm telling you, I was destined to be a marketer, um, or, or I was just so materialistic that I wanted new stuff, right? Um, but 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 companies do that, and they think that their job once they get the customer, their job is to deliver what they're supposed to do, and the reality is their job is to continue to woo, to continue to to flirt. And to send flowers and everything that we would do romantically that we do to our customers. What do you do at the holiday times? What do you send your best customers? Somebody sends me, I charge a healthy fee for my keynote for what I do. And when I have a colleague who gives me a referral, sends me a keynote, I'm not sending them a Starbucks gift card for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I give them a gift basket so big they can't fit it in the back of their car. I send them on a, a trip for a couple of days with their spouse. I, I bottle up a, a bottle of Dom Perignon, something. I mean, there's a great line that says the behavior that's recognized and rewarded is the behavior that's repeated. And so it's for those in business as well. Somebody gives a referral. Are we incentivizing referrals? Are we loving up our customers? I mean, do you really, I mean, it, it sounds hokey to say, but do you love your customers? Do you recognize what they do to put food on your table and feed your kids and that of your of your uh, of your staff, or are mm. we merely transactional? We've talked for generations. For us, it's about the relationship. Really, how are you showing it in a tangible way? Customers leave when they no longer feel the love, and customer and, and companies feel like if they just do everything they're supposed to do, that's enough. And it's not. It's not enough anymore because so many companies are good. Yes, and when I'm treated well by as a, as a repeat customer, it really breaks through. <laughs> it's still it's still uh, so rare. But also, you say who treats their uh, customers that well? I would say uh, the successful, fastest growing companies are. There, there's sure. folks out there that have caught on to this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here's what's interesting: it's everybody talks, right? If you want people to talk about you, give them something to talk about. Uh, we know that reviews are always going to be skewed a little bit negative. Those who are fine, right? Those who have their needs met aren't going to go online. They're not posting a positive or a negative. Everybody who has a negative perception of something is going to go online and rant. And 
but it's changed dramatically. The effect of it has changed dramatically. Not only do we have sites like Yelp and TripAdvisor and Rotten Tomatoes, <clears throat> but there's a mindset now where people are like, I will be heard. You know, what was Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, right? I'm not going to be ignored. Well, people feel that if there's any minor slight, they don't just complain to their friends. They complain to everyone. We, we all grew up in business, and this is, this is really important. And we learned what we called guest relations philosophy, and everybody heard this. And it went something like this. The average person with a positive experience will tell two or three people, right? But somebody with a negative experience will tell 10 people. None of that is true anymore. Now we tell thousands. Mm -hmm. Now we tell millions. Like just, just drag a paying customer off your airplane and see how fast that spreads. Right? Yeah. I mean, there's something bad that happens. It's the United Breaks Guitars. It's all of these stories that they used to worry because we would tell our neighbors. We tell everybody. My God, people take pictures of their food. And stop doing that, by the way. If you're listening, don't <laughs> stop taking pictures of your dinner. We don't, we don't care what you had. Yeah. But, or but that painful uh, rash you have. That, yeah. That does one. this look infected? Yes. Yes, <laughs> it does. Thank you, Google search. Right. Um, but, but so if we know that people are going to share, if we can give them positive stories to share, if we can facilitate the sharing. So what I tell my, my, my customers, my clients, my audiences is don't ask somebody because everybody's doing that now. Please, would you please leave a review? Have them do it right there. Put an iPad on a, on a mount on your counter if you have retail. It's, it's, I, I, I spoke to a huge dental group and I said, you, you know, you have those moments where somebody gets handed the mirror and they have tears and they realize that they have this beautiful new smile and, and they're, and they're crying and they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I, why did I wait for this? And this is, I said, pull out your phone. And put it in front of them and say, would you say that again? And they look shocked. And I'm like, are you kidding? People love to sh share those positive. Don't be reluctant to ask people to share positive reviews. It's the only thing that also pushes down negative reviews because the internet is forever. And the internet never goes away. And so you want as many positive. People have a positive experience. Encourage them to share. Ask them to share. I ask people, if you bought my new book, Why Customers Leave, please go online and say something nice. Please go on Amazon and leave a review. Uh, it's a different time. Uh, what, what affects us also affects our competitors. So the reality is anybody can say anything, and it doesn't have to be true, which is the real painful part of it. So how do we combat that is we control what we can. We fix the problems in our organization so we aren't handing them ammunition. I tell businesses, I tell audiences that you have to do business today as if every one of your customers is armed with a video camera because they are. Yes. Right? And there's a, there's an, a longstanding expression, caveat emptor, meaning let the buyer beware. But now we've moved and Anthony Anarino talks about this in his book, uh, The Lost Art of Closing, where he says, we've, we've crossed that point in the equator now. It's now caveat vendator let the seller beware so even yeah, the, if you the power is with the consumer today. yeah absolutely even absolutely. if you didn't do something wrong you better be ready for somebody who might allege you didn't do something wrong so right there's well, the delight but, but, right and, and there is a dichotomy isn't there because in business 20 years ago we would always try and do the right thing everybody would unless you're a bad person and very few of those is that if somebody wasn't happy you do what you can to try and make it right you try and work out something you give them a free dessert you give them whatever 
but at some point, some people will never be satiated. They'll never be satisfied. You just got to write them off. Mm -hmm. Today, you can't write anybody off because they will go on a crusade. I mean, there are people who have been um, violently attacked over negative Yelp reviews. I mean, there are, it's a crazy time and we just have to control what we can. We can control looking at our customer experience at every point of contact and making sure that we aren't handing them ammunition, handing them weapons. You know, if you go to a great restaurant and they have a a disgusting bathroom, it's going to taint your, your feelings, your impressions, your memories of that experience. Well, now, (coughs) excuse me, um, that applies to every business that applies to, we're compared to everything. Here's a big change, Douglas, is that historically We've always had to be really good in comparison to our competitors. They will compare you against your competitors. Today, for the first time ever, we're compared against like the best in every category. It's like, well, you got a delivery coming. I mean, Uber can show me their driver and I can see exactly where they are on the map and how far away. Why why can't you do that? Mm -hmm. Amazon can do next day delivery. Why can't you do that? So we got to control what we can. Yes. So... David, there are three central themes that you revisit throughout the book. Sure. Immediacy, individuality, and humanity. And I was wondering if you could explain those three concepts, particularly as they relate to how they typify today's profoundly different consumer from even just a few years ago. Before I even wrote the book, uh, I always asked the question, and of course, this is along the lines of my keynote as well, is why is this book even needed? Are there not shelves full of customer service, customer experience? What's different? And my mindset was, I have to say something different. And what's different is how our minds have changed in the last 11, 12 years since the iPhone came out. The world really is different. Our expectations are really different. We always, from the immediacy perspective, we've always wanted what we want when we want it. Today, we expect it. Today, they they can't do it. We are so impatient. I ask audiences and I say, raise your hand. Anybody find that their customers are a little more impatient than they used to be and everybody laughs and you can see everybody's head nodding. Well, why? It's because we used to have to go, we'd have to work for things. We'd have to drive somewhere to get a price. If we didn't know how to spell something, we'd say, mom, how do you spell ratatouille? And what would mom say? Look Look it it up up. in the dictionary. Look it up in the dictionary. Absolutely. Well, now we just ask Alexa. We just ask, and of course, and now in my office, Alexa just lights up. Um, You know, we we do it on our cell phone. We can get things very, very quickly. I, I guarantee for those who are listening right now, if I went into your house, walked into your kitchen, and looked at your microwave oven, it would be at two or three seconds. Because you couldn't wait long enough for the food. It's like, come on, it's like, oh, you're done, right? And you're pulling stuff. It's two more seconds. Let the thing cook. Why do I sound like Jerry Seinfeld? I don't know. I don't know. So immediacy is really important. So we have to be able to give our customers and our clients and our prospects what they want as fast as we can. If they want to reach a real person, let them do so. Don't make them go through 45 minutes on the phone for something that a a live receptionist could have connected us in six seconds. So Mm -hmm. that's the immediacy part. The second one is, is individuality. Um, We really, and this is, if you were going to blame anything on the millennials, it's probably this one in that they kind of want it the way they want it. They want to customize their experience. They want to do it a la carte. My kids, my kids don't want to go to the shoe store and buy shoes. They want to go online and design them, right? They want to be able to pick the colors and, and they want to be unique. 
And so the individuality is, is allow people to be, to customize, kind of do it their way. Maybe it's buying on an a la carte basis. Not every model supports that. Let me just interject there. They wanted made just for them. And it's, I don't know that it's necessarily a millennial thing. It's because they can, just like your other point. They grew up in that world. Yeah. The difference is we're all impatient, um, but we also, we can roll our eyes. There, there's enough of us who are still holdovers from the boomers and the, and the, even the Xers <clears throat> that we kind of remember the old way of doing things. The kids today, they don't remember it the old way. They, they've never known a world oh, without, okay. without mm-hmm. being able to buy things on their phone and all of that as well. So for them, it's absolutely that level of individuality. They want to be able to do it their way. Well, and also, and, David, that yeah. also talks to one of the things you talk about in the book, and I think there's 23 chapters and all these things that, all these different little things, but one of them is if you ask for something and they say, no, that's our policy, we, we, just, we just can't make that exception. Of course you can. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, that leads us into the third one, which is humanity, which is the reality that not all of our unique circumstances or requests are going to fit into your preconceived model or your training or your handbook. Mm-hmm. And we expect a level of respect and humanity. It doesn't mean that that people in business, you have the right to run your business absolutely the way you want. But understand that every time you say no, you are losing business to somebody who says yes. And you may be fine with that, with that calculus. But the humanity says... <clears throat> Sometimes we have a special request. And when you fall back on policy, sorry, we don't, we don't do that. Well, why? If somebody, if a young woman is in a restaurant and she's with her friends and she orders a chicken Caesar salad and she wants shrimp instead of chicken, she asks, I see there's shrimp on the menu. Can I do shrimp instead of chicken? Oh, sorry, we don't do menu substitutions. Well, why? Do you know why? Because the cook doesn't want to do it. Guess what? I don't care what the cook wants to do. What is, what's the alternative? not giving her what she wants. I mean, then she doesn't come back and she goes online and rants about what jerks you are. Here's the reality. Sure. Say yes. Charge her a few extra bucks. She'll be thrilled. Now the argument I get all the time, Douglas is the slippery slope. Well, if we do it for them, we have to do it for everybody. No, you don't grow. You're not in third grade. You only have to do it for the people who ask because if you can, because most people will never ask for a special accommodation. Um, I, I tell a story. I was walking out of a, uh, uh, a hotel at 7 o'clock in the morning. I've got a presentation from like 9 till noon. And I stop at the desk and I say, I, I need to do a late checkout. I don't get off stage until noon. Oh, sorry, we're not doing late checkouts. I said, well, I, I can't get off. I won't be back until about 12.15. I'll go really fast. I'll change clothes. I'll pack up. I'll be out at 12.30. She goes, no, sorry. Um, we have a convention coming in. And we're not doing any late checkouts. And I said, Oh, but they said, okay, we're gonna have to charge you for another night. Yeah, right. So she says, well, and I said, why can't she goes, well, if you can't be out by noon, we'll have to charge you for another night. And I said, all right. And of course, I teach this. I said, all right, so here's the deal. If you're going to charge me for another night, I'm not going to check out at all. If I'm going to pay for the room, I'm going to keep it. Now your convention goer doesn't have a room at all. Is that the outcome you were looking for? And she's like, uh, hey, um, one o'clock would be fine, right? And here's well the played, good sir. Yeah, and it's like, it's like, come on. I mean, that's humanity. Most people will not ask for a special request. Understand that we say no so often. Sorry, you can't. I, walking into the gap, sorry, no, you can't bring any, any beverages in here. I got a $7 Starbucks that's piping hot. I'm 55 years old. I'm not going to spill on your clothes. Sorry, 16-year-old gap sweater <laughs> folder. I'm, you know, but instead I walk away. Well, guess what? You, you, lost, you lost a customer because, 
because you weren't flexible. I'm, I, I'm not a fan of policies. Uh, yes. I'm a big fan of, of guidelines. Mm. Instead of teaching policy quoting, teach decision making. And maybe, just maybe somebody will make a bad decision once in a while, but you can gain a competitive advantage. You can build a better brand on being remarkably easy to work with. And you know what? I think if you try to run your business that way, you're probably going to have greater employee retention because they're going to be making decisions, feeling valued. You say to your employees, here's our policy, use good judgment. (laughs) Is that, what a concept. Yeah. That's uh that's a real differentiator and I think that people like uh being treated that way um by their employers. But David, let's jump into a couple things that are just super relevant to to marketers. And one of sure. them is uh chapter 3, uh, you say automation kills loyalty. And you write if you are annoyed and frustrated by the onslaught of unwanted emails, why do you think that your prospects will respond positively? to your using the same methodology. What's going on there? Well, I I use the analogy, like we all hate voicemail. I mean, not voicemail, but like um, endless voice trees. You you call somebody and, you know, please listen as our menu has changed, right? And you're listening. We hate them, but everybody still uses them. It's the same thing about automation. We, and this all came back from an era that we grew up with traditional mail. And then we had all this junk mail in it. And then we had email and that the, the clouds parted and the angels sang and look how we, we can now send to a, a hundred times more people at one hundredth of the or one thousandth of the cost because we don't have to print everything and it's going to be amazing. And the problem is now we have spam and it's just another form of junk mail except now we get hundreds a day and but people sell that value proposition that we're going to help you reach millions of people and they get a point. 0004 return. And they're, they're fine with that because look, we made a little bit of money, but the reality is there was probably thousands and thousands of people who might've actually bought from you if they didn't get a junk mail, didn't get spam, if they didn't get, and if you think that personalizing it by putting their name, because you used Infusionsoft or we call it Confusionsoft substitutes for that level of personalization then you're wrong. You have no idea how much business you lost. Now, there are times when that kind of efficiency makes sense, sending out bills, for example, right? Okay. But when but when you're trying to influence behavior, I mean, if it's just about mass distribution of content or notifications, bulk email makes great sense. But when you're trying to persuade somebody to do something you want them to do, there has to be a level of personalization and um, a greater level than what we're currently getting today. Because we just, I just, none of us read those emails and the bean counter will say, well, yeah, but look at the return that we got. We made enough money, but you just pissed off tens of thousands of people who could have been great customers for you because we treated them like a number. It's so true. And, and when I hear a prospect or a, a client use the word blast, oh. it's like a poker tell because I, I know that I've got some work here. And I just want to quote from uh, another part of the book where you say, here's the fact. When you send email blasts, you have no idea how many of the prospects who ignored you, were annoyed by you, and deleted you might actually have connected with you if they had been approached in a more personal way. You have no way of knowing. Ignorance isn't bliss. It's lost revenue, and it's back to that point where you talk about how so many companies have no idea how many sales 
they're missing out on, not just because yeah. of email, but for uh, many of the other things. One other thing that I wanted to talk about, and this may be more in the professional development area. Sure. For listeners, I don't know about you, but when I see the word passionate on someone's LinkedIn profile or Twitter profile, <laughs> for some reason, it just makes me wince. And it reminds me of Bob Hoffman, the ad contrarian, who says, you know, they're, 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 people are passionate about our brand or they're passionate about whatever it is they do. And he wants to say, get a room. So <laughs> chapter 11 is titled, It's Not What You Say, It's What We Want to Hear. And then you, you write that one of the leading causes of business failure is passion. Now, David Avern, I'm confused. I thought we were supposed to be following our passion, have a generation of workers become perhaps confused by some of Simon Sinek's advice about starting with your why and ugh, ugh, maybe following your passion. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek, except for that particular thing. I don't think anybody cares about your why. You know, so I'm I'm not buying from you so you can live your dream of saving the planet. I'm going to buy from you because you have a product or service that benefits me and my life. Uh, I tell companies all the time: if you have a an about us page that tells your story, uh, take it down because nobody cares. Unless you have a recipe from the old country that came from your mom and you're selling a a spaghetti sauce, then your your story maybe means something. But um, I, there's a great line, and I didn't come up with this. It says, when you're trying to get somebody to do what you want them to do, don't appeal to their better nature. Appeal to their self-interest. Mm -hmm. You'll get farther, right? They may not have a better nature. It's not about your why. Um, that's why you get up each day. That's what keeps you passionate about what you do. I love passion. Most businesses wouldn't exist if it weren't for a measure of passion. Just stop telling us that you're passionate about trucking or sandwiches or telephone service or battery distribution because that has nothing to do with us. Um, I, I love this. There was some marketing firm that every year came up with a, a list of the top 10 most overused and least effective terms in marketing. And, the, and for like three years in a row, the least effective term was passion. Oh, that's it doesn't I, mean it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have passion because that's what makes us that drives us. But our customers don't care what we're passionate about. Or, or you'll hear these claims. See what it's like to do business with people who love what they do. I'm not. You know, it doesn't make me want to buy your sheepskin seat covers. You know, it just that's that's not why we buy. And so. Passion is fine. I, I hear because I because I speak for a living, and my assistant and I do a little boot camp once a year. And we teach other speakers, and I get so many people in our profession. It goes back to what you had asked me before about why I don't want to be a mo or known as a motivational speaker. There's people who will talk to me about like, here's my story, and I and I survived cancer, and and listen, I have great respect for people who survived cancer, but they'll say, and I decided that day I was going to quit my job, and I was going to dedicate my life to helping people reconnect with the joy that they have, and I said, well. Listen, I said, no, no, David, David, you don't understand. People have lost their, why they're, they've lost the joy. And I said, okay, first of all, congratulations for what you've gone through. But if I'm a meeting planner, I'm not going to give you a, write you a check for $10,000 for you to live your life's dream of spreading joy. I'm not going to write it for you to have a cathartic experience on stage, but I will write a check if you can help me increase my sales and guard against disruption and develop my leaders and help my organizational efficiency but I'm not hiring you for you to live your dream, but I will hire you to solve my problems. Mm -hmm. So I think passion, when people think it's about what do you love, I think the people can make a living is when they connect their passion with a problem that somebody's willing to pay to solve. Then you've got sales nirvana, but it's not about you.
It's not. It's about them. Absolutely. David Avern, fake it till you make it. Why does that grind your gears? Or it, it grinds my gears because people, and, and I talk about this in the book, once again, why customers leave. Oh, wait, is sh- that people shouldn't people say will, this? <laughs> no, my gosh. What they do is they'll say yes, no matter what the question is, the answer is yes. Well, can you do this? Absolutely. And then they try and figure it out. I don't want somebody figuring it out on my dime. The reality is if there's something you can't knock out of the park, pardon our overseas you know, viewers for, uh, for the, uh, the American sports reference, but if you can't do so incredibly well, that you are uh, thrilling your clients. Don't even accept the work. Refer it to a colleague who will so appreciate it, and they may do it back. Because if you underperform, by any measure, they're going online, and they're going to rant about you. They're going to tell everyone. Remember, they're not going to tell 10 people. They're going to tell thousands of people. And so we, uh, so I, I advise don't only accept work that you can, where you can kill it, where you can do such great work. It's another reason why people leave is because somebody underperforms. I get asked all the time. I speak for a living. This is, this is what I do. But if I'm asked to speak on a subject, I don't speak about And they're saying, listen, our client really loves you, but could you talk on, on leadership or can you talk on, on time management? No. Um, I'll refer you to, to Ty Bennett. He's great on leadership. I'll, I'll, t- I'll refer you to, uh, to Laura Stack. She's great with, with time management. I only do what I do and I do it really, really well. And that's not being arrogant. That's knowing my lane. And so I would advise everybody in business, do what you do that what you're really good at. Don't fake it till you make it. Don't charge for it until you can knock it out of the park. Yes, and that actually helps your credibility immeasurably. If I've ever yeah. engaged with another company and they say, you know, that's not something, that's not really our sweet spot. This is what we really do well. I always go back to them for yeah. that specific thing. Well, thank you for being honest. Yeah, isn't that great when you, somebody will say that? It's great, and it's, and it's, uh, it's rare. One other quick question. Sure. Uh, ch- chapter 9 is titled, Fix Your Dysfunctional Website. What are the websites, the website mistakes that companies are just making chronically? Here, here's a very quick answer. Is It's simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. It's access, access, access. Whether it's access to information, access to a real person. Um, gone are the days where we had an $80,000 complicated website where there was a flash animation in the bottom right-hand corner said, click here to skip intro, and everybody skipped it. Well, now they're replacing those with $1,000 websites, $800 websites that are easy to navigate unless you have a real complex e-commerce play. Most of our websites, it's an online brochure. It's, it's, you want to get them on the phone. You want to get them to order. You want to get them, make it super easy. Some of the best WordPress websites today, you don't have to click to another page. Everything's on the home page. You mm-hmm. scroll down, right? If you're, if for my colleagues who are speakers, don't put your video on, you know, the third link and the second button. Everything's right there up front. So, complex websites, expensive websites. You don't get a better website because you spend more money. I mean, look at the shape of your screen. If you're looking at your computer right now, it's the same shape, whether you spend $25,000 or $8,000. It's what is your tolerance for what you're going to put in that space. You can hire people overseas on Upwork, on Fiverr, on whatever else, or you can hire somebody in the United States. It doesn't matter. The reality is it's got to be remarkably intuitive. I'll see a, a, a site that, I mean, look, what is the most visited website in the world? It's Google. How complicated is their homepage? Not. 
right? Yeah. And so people, they, so many bells and whistles and, and it's just, you know, people just, they just, we don't have patience. We'll just click onto somebody else once again, because we can. Yes, and it brings to mind the uh, story I'll sometimes hear where, you know, you may be explaining to a company, you know, some of the things they need to be doing to make it easier for the changing way that people buy. And they'll say, well, Douglas, you see, we're different. Our customers don't go online, which just, I, I laugh so hard. Who are your customers, Tibetan monks? No, I know, but it's like, see, our customers don't, they don't go online. Oh, really? <laughs> well, and they may not even say that anymore, but they're, they're thinking that, at, you know, and then they're, they're on the, the computer quite a bit. The, the only, last thing I want to ask about the book was, you write, uh, I want to quote, uh, computer-generated emails are like your neighbor's annoying dog sticking his nose in private places. He can seem incredibly friendly, but he lacks the social awareness to realize that he's making you very uncomfortable. David, why is chapter 16 that's, titled... That's poetry. <laughs> that's poetry, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. It's, it's an eminently uh, quotable book. And, you know, the, the dog misbehaving like that, it just... I, it spoke to me. But... Chapter 16 is entitled, Your Stalking is Creeping Us Out. What, <laughs> what do you mean, and, and what, what's going on there? Well, here's an example I think most people will identify with. Um, and, and I've always been a big fan of LinkedIn. Um, I like sort of the shift. Originally, it was about meeting people the way you, that you want to meet through the people you already know about these sort of soft introductions. And I used to say, LinkedIn is not Facebook for business people. Well, today, it kind of is. It's a great place to post content. But the the contact feature has been destroyed because every day I get between 15 and 20 requests to, to connect on LinkedIn. And 95% of those, as soon as I click to connect, I'm immediately hit with a sales pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, tell about here's what I do. Um, at least can we set up a conversation? I can save you money on whatever else. And I'm just, I feel just dirty. It's like, buy me dinner before you, you try and kiss me at the door or, or put your hand somewhere. It's like, come on. Well, and for do me, we, it's we, like when I pick up the phone uh, and it turns out to have been a cold call from somebody, I feel disappointed that I was that I was taken. But I'll tell you what, you and every listener should follow the advice of Tim Hughes, co-author of Smarketing. Report them for spamming you and uh, do that. It's going to make it better for everybody and disconnect from them. Yeah, I, I think there's an opportunity to develop some great relationships, but there's also people misuse it. And so when they're stalking, it's, you know, we say yes to one thing and all of a sudden they're every day. I tell this funny story. It's like you, you meet a friend, like, and then the next day it's like, hey, what are you doing? And then, and then they send you a text the next day. What are you doing? Or why are you not responding? Are you mad at me? Are you, but what are you doing this afternoon? <laughs> Do you want to get together? It's like, God, leave me alone. I just, I just said hi once. Right. Like, oh my God. Just like, you're, you're smothering me. <sighs> and so that's the mistake that we make is that anybody shows the slightest amount of interest. And then all of a sudden we inundate them. And, but we delude ourselves into thinking, look how efficient we reached all these people. I'm hit up all the time by people who say, I can help you automate your marketing. And I said, but that's the opposite of what I want to do. <laughs> I teach this. I don't want to automate my marketing. I don't want to automate any, but listen, look how many people you're going to reach. No, I said, that's how many people I'm going to annoy and preclude any potential of selling them or, or something in the future or connecting with them on a personal level because I just annoyed them. You just, you just got, you want me to stick me in a bucket with everybody else that annoys them all day? No, thank you. I don't, I, we don't automate anything. We have a, we have a sales machine be, for my speaking and I speak all over the world, but 
everything is personalized and nothing is automated. The machine is just that we have a great calendar and a great process and how many people are repitching in a day. But every one of those letters is personalized with the name of their event and something about their industry that I've spoken for before. We're efficient, but we're very personalized and we can trace a ton of success back to the fact that we don't automate anything. Mm. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine who has an MBA from a top tier school, he sends me a message and he said, hey, I just found about this thing where you can send uh, automated text messages to people. Do you think that's a good idea? And first I'm thinking, no. you, you oh. clearly paid too much for that MBA. But all I could say, it was just, it was just amusing because it's a friend of mine, but it was sort of like, would you like getting those texts? And you know, the answer. response back was, no, oh, piss me off. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. but Next you know, question? the other thing, um, funny, funny marketing book podcast story. There was a, an author I was going to interview, uh, who started a, a company. And as fate would have it, a, a few weeks before that interview, I received uh, a LinkedIn connection from somebody who worked at that company. And I thought, oh, okay, that's great. And, uh, then I, I got an email and I uh, said, no, not, not really interested. It's not really a fit for us. We've already got a product that does that. And uh, then I started getting, I got another email and I said, hey, you know, not interested. If you could just stop, stop emailing me. And then I started getting messages actually from Google saying, hey, there's a lot of spam coming from this email address. We just want you to know about it. And so I finally just had to send that salesperson to the spam folder so I would never see their messages. Yep. Then uh, he he kept at it on LinkedIn. I then had to delete it and report him for spam on LinkedIn. This guy then goes on the chatbots on our website and starts, you know, more of the spam, more of the spam. And I finally responded back and said, if you don't stop, I'm telling the founder of your company, <laughs> who I don't think would like what you're doing, I'm I'm going to tell them. And he was very apologetic, but I'm just thinking... What, what, who, who does this work? And then just yesterday on a, 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 a Facebook group I belong to for certain types of uh, marketing agencies, they were saying, hey, am I the only one? Is everybody else getting messages like this from that company? And it was very funny, but it's like, yeah. it's a perfect example of what you talk about in the book and what we've talked about of you have no idea the bad aftertaste you're, you're leaving for people. And you know what? That guy, that salesman, Maybe he's being told to do that. Maybe that's the culture, but that's unfortunate for whoever it is. So Right, or, or they look at the, the numbers, say, look how much money I made, so I don't care what you think. Or they just dismiss you as well. You're always going to have haters. I get messages on LinkedIn, and I just write them back, and I say, does that approach work for you? Yes! Because it's because it's not, and and of course, my you know my assistant in the office said, don't spend, why you spend time on that? I'm like, Be because I'm David Avern, it's just what I do. <laughs> It doesn't mean I'm the most effective with my time, but some people need a response. Um, but, well, it's but worth I, asking because someone might say, yeah. yeah, we're being forced to do it. It's just like when I spoke to your friend, Scott McCain, recently, and yeah. one of his clients is United Airlines. And there's a lot of, of really good Heard people working for United Airlines, yeah. and they don't like some of the things that have happened there. Yeah. Well, you hear every, every time their CEO goes on after some other mishap and says, this is not who we are. Well, clearly it is. Or, or <laughs> Or you wouldn't keep having to go on TV saying that. And I and I am rooting for United Airlines. I'm out of Denver. I'm a million miler. And uh, and I want United Airlines to be great. But once again, where's our focus? It's when, de when decisions are made, when policy is created, 
Right now, it's the bean counters, it's the finance people in the room, and it's the operations people. And I think what's missing in the room is marketing. I think customer service and customer experience is missing in that room. Sales is missing in that room because there are ramifications for the decisions that they make, the things that they're going to say no to, the the amenities that they're no longer going to provide. The, the bean counter is happy, but what they don't know, once again, Douglas, is how many people just walked away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great question. I think people should think about that. So, David, if readers took only one thing away from this book, what would you hope it would be? I think it would be that they need to buy the book. I think if we were, no, I think- No, I'll give it to them. No, I'm kidding. There Um, you go. Even better. If you're going to give it to all your clients, I'll just send you a box. No, I think the biggest the biggest. No, I want to hand it out to places where I get bad service. There you go. And I think they need it. I think the biggest takeaways, first of all, it, it's, it's a, I think it's an entertaining read. I think it's very conversational. Uh, it is, it's, it's people who, who have seen me speak, who know me said they could hear my voice in it. But I think the biggest takeaway is for business owners, those in business is take a step back. And the way you design your business is not necessarily the way that your customers see your business. And so if you take a step back and look at every point of contact and ask some questions, is that the way it should be done? And in most cases, the answer is yes. But there's always ways to do it better or different. There are people sitting in a room right now trying to figure out how to disrupt your industry. Not because they're nefarious forces trying to trying to put you out of business, but they're trying to say, could we do that differently today? Could we do it better? And then you you don't find yourself um, an industry that's saying, what happened, right? I guarantee you the taxi drivers in, in America and around the world didn't anticipate, oh, by the way, every car on the road is now potentially a taxi, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if it's happening to you, it's disruption. Of course, if we lead it, it's, it's innovation. We just call it something different. But I think the biggest takeaway is if you're just doing what you're supposed to do, you're losing opportunities. If you are making it difficult for your customers to do business with you or talk to you or buy from you or get a yes answer, you are losing business. So it's all in the book. And the other good news is it's also available on audiobook. I recorded that. It's on Kindle. It's available everywhere. And the really fun thing is it's also going to be printed in Chinese, in Russian, in Spanish, and they're doing an English version in India. So it's like all of a sudden it's going to be all over the world, which is pretty fun. Well, terrific. And I should add, because after I read enough of these books, I figured something out. People who make a living from speaking write great books, and here's why. It's sort of the comedian approach, where those jokes you're hearing a comedian say, they've been testing that stuff out in front of live audiences for years. And so, uh, that's why when I find out that an author is also a public speaker, I know that this is probably field-tested information. The, the, The book is very well paced, so... Um, I'm on to you guys. I, I, I figured it out. So there you go. So David, what books have inspired your work and career? Oh, you know what? There are there are some great books. I, I think anything that's, that Sam Richter does, R-I-C-H-T-E-R, he's a colleague and a friend and probably one of the most brilliant marketing guys. Um, he wrote a book called Take the Cold Out of Cold Calling. Uh, he, he's a brilliant speaker. He's a great person you should have on your podcast as well. Um, but early in my career, it was Joe Calloway. Right. Becoming oh, yeah. a category, becoming a category of one. He was so kind. My first book, um, 
It's not who you know, it's who knows you. He wrote the foreword for me, which was just such a great honor. We've become friends. Um, Harry Beckwith with Selling the Invisible uh, was a real inspiration for me as, as understand that, that why, once again, why people buy, they build, they buy the promise of what you can deliver. So how do we become persuasive? Um, even I say in speaking, speaking is not a business getting the gig is the business. And Harry Beckwith was selling the invisible is, uh, unless you're selling a widget, you're selling the promise of what you can deliver. And that's a great influence on my life and my career and sort of modeling the the kinds of books that I wanted to write as well. Oh, terrific. Well, I actually had the honor of interviewing Joe Calloway a couple of years ago, and it was one of the best interviews ever. So oh, he's brilliant, beyond brilliant. Yeah. And such a good man and a great dad. And I will definitely uh, check out uh, the other two that I was not familiar with, but that's why I asked this question. Gosh sure. darn it. So yeah. are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard of or are looking forward to reading? You know what? I think currently out, you said that you had interviewed um, Jay Bear and Jay Bear's book, Talk Triggers, oh, I think yes. was beyond brilliant. Um, very different than mine. His is so research-based and mine isn't. It isn't. I, I talked to a literary agent. She says, I, I gave her the proposal and she says, where's your, your data, your empirical data, the studies that back up your assertions? And I said, not only do I not want to write that book, I don't want to read that book. Um, <laughs> But, but Jay Baer did, B-A-E-R, did a phenomenal job of taking research and making it relatable and digestible and great stories and everything. Um, I'm not that talented. Uh, I, for me, it, it's stories, it's anecdotes. As you said, I've had one-on-one -on -one conversations with over 4,000 company CEOs over the last 11 years. And, and that's where my material came from. Yeah, uh, that and, and so, your United Airlines frequent flyer. Uh, there, number that's that's you. your that's your data you know it's right, funny just uh while reading your book and also talking to you here in this interview uh jay's books particularly talk triggers and hug your haters both both came right. to mind those are two books that are would uh, that go that go very nicely with this one i sound like a book sommelier oh yes it goes very well with uh with fish it's paired paired with a nice <laughs> right. rosé yeah, exactly. yes yes so how best can listeners learn more about you and uh, this latest book Sure, absolutely. Uh, they find me online at visibilityinternational.com, Visibility International. You can see video of me speaking, and of course, my books are everywhere uh, online and otherwise. And uh, if you want to send me an email, I'm, I'm the guy that unless I'm on stage, I am returning emails and hotels on airplanes and everything else. It's david at davidavrin.com, A-V-R-I-N, and I will respond personally. Well, terrific. I hope listeners will send you an email uh, and thank you for being on the, the Marketing Book Podcast. We will include links to your, your sites, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle, and uh, as many of the books that uh, were mentioned that we can. We'll, everything that's linkable will link on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And uh, for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app. All these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. Also, I'd like to thank so many of you for leaving iTunes reviews, hundreds of them. When you do a review, uh, more people are able to discover the show. So in a certain way, you're all growing the audience here. If you've left a review, please connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a screenshot of the review so I can read it and 
enjoy it. And include your mailing address wherever you are in the world, and I will send you a thank you note, a marketing book podcast bookmark, and a marketing book podcast laptop sticker. And David Averin, you're going to get all those things too. So you know, thank you. In answer thank to you, your unasked you. questions. So yes. the name okay. of the book is Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. The author is David Averin. David, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, my friend. And that closes the book on episode 229 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist, to support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan. Visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome John Jantz back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Referral Engine, Teaching Your Business to Market Itself. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong. Yes, and we did go way long, and I'm sorry about that. What no, no. I lo- hey, listen, you know me. I mean, well, you can tell I, I, I'm not shy. If you, can get me, if you could just get me to come out of my shell a bit. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right.